I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Kostas Kampourakis, author and editor of several books about evolution, genetics, philosophy, and the history of science, as well as being the editor of the Cambridge University Press book series, Understanding Life. He is former editor-in-chief of the journal Science and Education, as well as two other science education book series. He is currently a researcher at the University of Geneva, where he also teaches at the section of biology and the University Institute for Teacher Education. Today's interview focuses on his latest book, Understanding Genes. Kostas, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So Kostas, much of, if not most of your work, focuses on broadening public understanding of the theory of evolution, as well as the concepts and fields of studies related to it, such as the topic of today's interview, genetics. So how did this field become your life's passion? Well, I, I used to be a school teacher for 12 years, and uh, while teaching the important concepts and aspects of these subjects, I often realize that students have a lot of misunderstandings, which are due to misinformation, but also to strong intuitions that people have. So I started looking further into the details of what is going on, and I ended up uh, doing my PhD dissertation on the topic of evolution education. And people often listen to evolution and evolution education and think that it's only about creationism and the relation to religion. But eventually, research in psychology shows that uh, the idea of evolution itself is a very counterintuitive theory, something that we can discuss further if you want. So this all uh, was of enormous interest to me because at that point I wanted to be able to teach effectively and help students understand the theory and whether and how it may have a, an impact on their worldviews and everything. And eventually when I finished my uh, dissertation, I thought that you know, there was something to write about for a broader audience. And this is how I ended up writing my first book, Understanding Evolution. And uh, then while doing this and while also discussing genetics, I realized that there was a concept uh, in between, the concept of the gene, which was also misunderstood. And this in turn brought uh, up the second idea for the second book, uh, which was called back then Making Sense of Genes. And Understanding Genes that you mentioned is a new, concise and revised edition of that. So, so when you say that the uh, theory of evolution is counterintuitive, I know that's not our main topic, but it's, it's kind of inevitable that that's going to come up. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what, what way is it counterintuitive? Uh, the problem with uh, understanding evolution has to do that we are prone to perceive purpose and design in nature. One probable reason, uh, cause of that, is that we grow up surrounded by artifacts. And from a very young age, we realize that things around us, objects around us, exist for a purpose and have uh, the features that are necessary for that purpose. So it seems that eventually we extrapolate this kind of thinking and we apply it to organisms as well. Uh, and then, you know, science comes and tells us, no, there's not always a purpose, even if there is a function for some part of uh, the organisms, uh, but these are evolved functions. And this is something that is difficult for people to digest because the intuition is that something exists for a purpose and then science tells us, well, there may be a purpose. It's not there all the time, but if there is, it's something that has evolved. It's not something that has been designed by God, nature, or anything else. So the big problem here is to make people understand that we may have 
organs and structures for a role, but this is very different in terms of how they came to be than the usual notion of someone who had designed them. So in other words, the, the purpose is an afterthought in a sense. I mean, it, it turns out that way. It's kind of uh, a happy accident. Yes, in some cases, in some cases it is. Uh, the accident, of course, is how the structure initially emerged because in many cases, uh, the process we all know that is called natural selection can operate in a sense that uh, can bring, you know, a feature, not always an optimal form, but a form that is well adjusted to do something. Because whenever something works well, its parents can be favored. They have advantages in uh, reproduction and survival and reproduction. And so those that are a bit better than the others can do better uh, in this uh, function. And so they have an advantage. And this is, in a sense, how a structure can be modified evolutionarily. But if you look at most of the structures, there are always problems. There are always uh, little difficulties because there's no way this can be optimized, this can become optimal in any sense. So uh, to give an analogy, and I know in your book you talk about metaphors uh, quite a lot, and I think I'm hoping that we'll get to that uh, a little later in the interview. But by analogy, let's say you uh, decide to take a walk in a neighborhood that you don't usually go to, and then you meet up with a friend you haven't seen in 30 years, and you say to the friend, ah, this was, this was meant to be, you know, to, to run into you. And so you ascribe a purpose after the fact because it seems so meaningful, you know, that you met up with this person. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, this is what we usually do in hindsight because, and that's actually the topic of another book I have written called Turning Points, where exactly I show that uh, in hindsight, we, we see outcomes in human development, in our life, in our everyday life, and in evolution. And knowing already the outcome, why we try to explain how this came up without realizing that uh, in essence there may have been different possible outcomes that uh, never were never realized because of the contingencies uh, of the antecedent conditions of what was there available so as you say when you meet a friend you don't realize that you know you just met by accident uh, because if you had turned a turn you know a few minutes ago you might never have, have come across him but uh, this is exactly how things are and actually, uh, when you know the result, it's easy to interpret, or we think it's easy to interpret it, but uh, we never realize that we cannot know all the details of past events. Yeah, this reminds me of the conversation I had with a, a friend who said of his children that now that they're here, and they were, I think, already young adults, he couldn't imagine them not being here. It's as if their existence was inevitable. And my reply was, no, with my kids, you know, I'm always amazed at how contingent the whole thing is. I mean, that they could have not been born or been entirely different. The unlikelihood of their being existing to me <laughs> was the was the amazing thing. And both for both of us, it was a quasi-mystical uh, thought in either direction. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree because, you know, once you get used to something, you cannot think you're alive without that. But uh, if you make a calculation whenever there is uh, some kind of, uh, you know, fertilization uh, given the number of possible reproductive cells that each parent can produce in theory, each one of us can have more than 70 million or more possible siblings if you combine how uh, different combinations of chromosomes and genes and everything exist. So it, eventually it is a matter of chance that we are all here because it was you know two cells that happened 
to fuse and uh, then to be implanted on our mother's uterus and then uh, after nine months we were born yeah but, but i think people don't like to be to think of themselves as infinitesimally unlikely people <laughs> you know it's like no no i was i was meant to be this, this is the feeling yeah exactly and as i told you this is uh, this has to do with uh, deep intuitive thinking that uh, makes uh, more uh, reasonable to explain things in terms of design. For instance, that's one reason that people also accept conspiracy theories, uh, because you know it's easier to accept that there was a design or a plan that brought about something than just a chance event. Uh, I mean, the JFK assassination is the best example in that case. How how could one person uh, achieve that? Uh, there must have been a plan. Well, it seems that that person got lucky and he he achieved what he wanted to achieve, and this is it. There's no need for us to go further than that. But research in psychology shows that people who tend to think in terms of purpose also tend to believe more easily these uh, conspiracy theories and more broadly the idea that anything is uh, the outcome of a plan. And this, of course, that's something that goes well with religious views. Huh? So one thing that was interesting to me in reading your book is, is that you not only are presenting the information, but you also have done research on what the public already knows or thinks they know. And that, that helps to inform what, what's needed in terms of increasing the understanding of people on whatever the topic is in your case, evolution. My primary area of research is uh, in science education and the public understanding of science. I come to know quite well what people think. And eventually I think that for writing a book, it is essential to be somehow aware of how your readers tend to think. So this is why I begin the book Understanding Genes with a broad overview of how the gene concept is represented uh, in the media, in the public sphere more broadly, but also how well people tend to understand it or not, in order then to develop an argument that uh, counters, uh, I hope, the main misunderstandings. We have not a good idea, we do not have a good idea of how prevalent these are, but we know from research that they are intuitive and easy to accept. These are the ones I describe overall as genetic fatalism, the idea that genes prescribe our fate. And uh, so then I'm trying to use the science to develop an argument that shows that the banks is this idea that shows that uh, genes are not our essences. They do not determine who we are. And so we cannot explain anything on the everything on the basis of genes. Of course, I do not go to the other extreme, which is uh, a genetic denialism. I'm not uh, arguing against genetic fatalism and for genetic denialism. Genes are very important. The DNA that we all carry is very important in prescribing who we are, but this prescription is done in a complex combination with environmental factors, both inside us and outside, to the extent that at the individual level, we cannot say which is more important, because they both matter. Now, my issue is that, in general, in discussions in the public sphere, people tend to prioritize genes and DNA. And the biggest concern that I have with that is that when we explain everything on the basis of genes and DNA, then neither ourselves nor the society is to blame. We can, we can easily say, I was born like this, or he was born or she was born like this, and there's nothing we can do. Whereas I think that we can all 
do many things, both uh, for health issues and for societal issues, uh, and refrain from uh, just ascribing everything to genes. You know, when people ask me, you know, which is it, nature or nurture, I say it's 100% of both, <laughs> because they're always interacting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it seems to me that the, the theory of evolution is uh, sometimes rejected on religious grounds. I guess that's the, probably the most uh, frequent reason for rejecting it. But uh, the misconceptions of genetics, it seems to me, are probably more common regardless of the beliefs about evolution. In fact, I would think that even might even be more so with people who think that they're very um, pro-science, so to speak, and interested in science, but overestimate the, the scientific progress that, that we've made. The uh, human genome uh, project was, was completed, so to speak, <laughs> at least the sequencing of the genes in 2003, a, a few years ahead of schedule. I think it took, uh, was, it, was it 13 years, something like that? Well, I, I don't know if you know that the full sequence was completed a few months ago. Only a few months ago? Yeah, just a few months ago, they announced that they now have the complete sequence. Oh, so what was happening in 2003? Well, they had most of it. And of course, uh, at that time, there was a competition between uh, the public consortium that was trying to sequence the genome and uh, a private company, Cellular Genomics, that emerged from that. And so the company, the private company was building on the public uh, data made available by the public consortium and they advanced and they went further. And, uh, and in an attempt to reconcile uh, the two competing um, groups, uh, they made an announcement uh, in uh, 2000 that they had most of that. that this was made in the White House uh, with the then President Bill Clinton. And uh, then they said, here is, we have most of these uh, and, uh, you know, we're ready to go. Unfortunately, we didn't go much further than that uh, until today, because there's a lot that we do not know. The, that, that was the big issue with uh, the Human Genome Project, because it uh, relied a lot on the metaphor of the book. And uh, what was misunderstood is that uh, what we had at that time was not uh, the complete book uh, with uh, all the words and the syntax and everything. What we had was just a sequence of letters. And we still need today a lot of time to read all the words. We have a very good sense of where we're going. Things are developing all the time. We may arrive at the point that we may you know, be able to do a lot of things uh, in terms of diagnosis and everything. But there's still a long way to go because it is one thing to ring the letters and it is another thing to figure out the words. And now we have managed to figure out most of the words but what we do not know is how exactly the cells read them in expressing this, the information that is there. And we need to understand then all the complex interactions that uh, are around. And of course, uh, until that time, they thought that most of DNA was junk. Uh, they said that you know, it's about a three, four, five percent that codes for genes. But now we know that a lot of that uh, so-called junk uh, has uh, regulatory functions. So all in all, we have come a long way. We have understood a lot. Also, the Human Genome Project supported the, the, the development of methods and uh, uh, laboratory techniques uh, for sequencing and everything. The technology has advanced in an amazing pace, but there is a lot that we still do not know. 
Yeah, so on the one hand, you have science advancing at this amazing pace. On the other hand, it's really important to know what the overall magnitude of what there is to know. And of course, it's impossible to really know that in advance. But I think the suspicion is that it's an enormously large quantity. And so that even though we're advancing very, very quickly, it still could take an incredibly long time to really understand it fully. I mean, to use an analogy, I mean, the speed of light is incredibly fast. But if the distances are vast enough, it could take you know millions of years to travel. Yeah, that, that's a good, very good analogy, actually. And the issue is exactly that we do not know what the distance is. We're traveling fast. Uh, science is doing a great job. Scientists are very well aware of the limitations and the, the, the potential. The problem is that we do not always communicate the limitations to non-experts. And so there are high expectations sometimes. Uh, the current discussion now is about polygenic risk scores and you know predictions about how intelligent uh, one will be from when he sees an embryo. And if you listen at what the experts say, they say that there's a limited potential at this time. Not, there's not much we can do. But there are also companies that uh, may soon be selling this test. Actually, there was one that was advertising this, then they took it a bit back. So it is very important to explain to people, as I said, both the potential and the limitations. And unfortunately, in science, we always have both of these. A great potential, but also a significant number of limitations. So I don't know if you're familiar with the English idiom, putting the a cart in front of the horse. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a real danger of doing that sort of thing. In this case, uh, marketing genetic uh, informational, uh, you know, for consumer use, that's just not really there yet. And, uh, you know, telling people about their characteristics, whether it's of their offspring or of themselves, with a tremendous error rate, because we don't really understand it yet. And, and yet it's being sold. Yeah, there are, of course, some diseases for which we can make good predictions. But even in those cases, this does not mean that we can cover everything. Uh, because uh, you never know the complexities of development. I remember, you know, once when I was a student, that was a long time ago, I was in a conference uh, somewhere in Greece. You know, uh, thalassemias are quite frequent in Greece because uh, the alleles related, uh, implicated in the development of, the, of this disease are quite uh, frequent. And there was a presentation of a case where the couple, the two parents uh, had uh, what uh, we call uh, a heterozygous condition whereas they had some issue, some lower hemoglobin, but not a significant problem. But uh, when they were tested, the counselor told them that uh, there was you know, a probability of 25% for the child to, have, to inherit both uh, alleles related to the disease and develop severe anemia. And actually, they decided to have uh, a child, and when they did their prenatal diagnosis, they found that the child did carry uh, the two mutations, and the recommendation was, was to abort, to stop the pregnancy. But for their own reasons, they decided not to do this. I don't remember if it was religious reasons or something else. And eventually, the child was born, but it did not have severe anemia, even though it had the two mutations. And now we know that uh, it's not only about that gene, the alleles of that gene, but also we know today that, uh, in general, all characteristics are polygenic, and eventually sometimes uh, the problem caused by an allele can be compensated by something else. Uh, actually, there's now research that shows, uh, and I mentioned that in the book, that uh, there are what we call human knockouts. P 
peoples in whom uh, genes have been uh, destroyed. Nevertheless, phenotypically, they don't have problems because somehow the organism manages to compensate for that. And this is why reading the genome and the alleles that one has is not enough. It can give us a good chance to get things right, but it's not absolute because you never know how development will work. Before we go on, I think it would be important in order to not give the impression that we have no understanding, and I know that you're not trying to do that, but there, there are quite a few diseases that are rare that are detectable genetically and caused in large measure genetically, Down syndrome being probably one of the most common, where you can look at the chromosomes under a microscope and you have an extra chromosome or things like that, or even specific genes like Tay-Sachs disease and other things of that sort. Uh, the NIH has uh, a website called rarediseases.info.nih.gov, and it has 4,000 entries listed of such diseases. Of course, you add them all up, it's still only a few percentages uh, points, I think, for the, the entire population. There's another website that also lists genetic diseases that are not necessarily rare. And I was really surprised that they had things like Huntington's disease, things that are very much genetic, but they also had uh, things that are clearly very polygenic, like ADHD and things that are, that are incredibly complex, both genetically and environmentally. And I think there's a tendency to mush them all together. And I think that's where we get into trouble in terms of misunderstanding the, the role of, of genes. Here's the issue. There are some diseases uh, which are usually, perhaps most often, due to specific genes. And the problem is when people expand this uh, model to all diseases, but this is not the case. Now, if you look at the details of even what we call monogenic diseases, they are essentially polygenic. For instance, for the example of uh, beta thalassemia that I mentioned, uh, we say that uh, the disease is due to mutations uh, in a specific gene, HBB, but uh, the real problem is not that you have less hemoglobin uh, than normal. The real problem is that uh, there are proteins, protein chains produced by another gene, two other genes, HBA1 and 2, which accumulate and cause problems in cells. So eventually, in a sense, the gene relates to the disease, but the problem is caused by the excess of proteins produced by another gene. So even in that case, we have at least three genes involved, and it's not as simple as we tend to present it. Uh, and if you look at more traits, I mean, eye color, for instance, there we also have at least three or four genes which are involved. And if you go further, then we have environmental factors and everything. So sometimes we can provide explanations based on genes alone for individual cases. But more broadly, we have to consider different kinds of factors. And the notion, the important notion here is that uh, we have both polygyny and pleiotropy, which means most genes are involved in many phenotypes, and most phenotypes are affected by many genes. There is no one-to-one -one relation. We, this is quite simplistic, and this is what we want uh, to debunk. Of course, and that's a crucial issue, in the medical context, when a medical doctor or a medical geneticist uh, sees someone who has a disease, it is very likely that from the disease they can infer the problem. But it doesn't always go the other way around. This is the kind of the hint side we discussed about evolution. Once you have the disease, you can explain it. But this doesn't mean that once you see the gene, you can predict the disease with the same certainty. 
because development is a very complicated process. So we see what we see and we try to understand what is going on, but unfortunately, things are quite messy in our development. There are many factors that have uh, an impact. And so it doesn't always matter to see what which genes we carry. And as I say that, there's another danger. There were, uh, you know, there, these are, there are these PRCA or BRCA genes related to breast cancer. And people go and take a test to see if they have them and then do what they have to do, which usually has nothing to do with the genes, but it has to do with diet, you know, refrain from smoking or do other things. However, the biggest danger here is for people to take a test and when they realize that they don't have the genes for which they were tested, they say, okay, there's no danger now. But this is not the case because we do not know all the genes that are there. And as you mentioned, there are at least 4,000 conditions or relevant alleles. And how many of these should we check or we ought to check? Even experts are not sure yet. That's why we usually go for the most frequent ones and trying to do the best that we can. Yeah, I'm wondering if the concept of necessary and sufficient is, uh, is relevant here. So, for instance, there are certain diseases that if you have the wrong gene, then you're going to have the disease, like Huntington's disease, which is a rare, it's rare that a disease is caused by a single gene. But there are some diseases, diseases like that. And it doesn't mean that that gene is the only cause, but it's if you don't have that gene or if it's the wrong gene, then that's, that's sufficient to cause the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And whereas there are other problems, like, for instance, uh, schizophrenia, I don't think we really know how many genes are involved, but we're talking about probably hundreds where each one maybe contributes a little bit of percentage, but not, no one of them or even probably many, many of them would be sufficient. Uh, so that's a different kind of situation. Yeah, exactly. There are some diseases for which there are genes which are necessary and some of them can be sufficient occasionally, but not always. But in most cases and in most diseases, there are many, many, many genes that make minor, minor contributions. And just to refrain from talking you know, about diseases all the time, let's take height, for instance. We know at the population level that 80% of our differences in height are due to genetic differences. But this doesn't mean that height is mostly genetic because we're talking about statistical differences at the level of a population. What this means, and this is the important, is when you look uh, at how many genes or sites on DNA contribute to that, there are hundreds. And now we know that many of these have to do with uh, you know, bone development or growth and things like that. But there are so many that essentially you cannot predict uh, whether a child will be you know, taller or shorter than their parents because you cannot put together in a model all these minor contributions. So would it help, though, let's say if you knew in advance that all the children being studied are going to have optimal nutrition, optimal sleep, optimal exercise, you know, th then the amount of variance uh, controlled by the genes would seem much bigger, I would think. Yes, but the, the problem is that from the phenomena that we study at the population level, it's hard to make dif inferences for the individual. Uh, and that's something that people ha have a hard time to understand. We can study populations and we can compare these populations and, uh, you know, people with the disease or people without the disease and, and make some inferences or, you know, taller and shorter people. But uh, it's not always uh, easy. Actually, it's quite hard 
to base inferences about individuals on those. Especially in the case of uh, disease, well, you know, you, we usually compare groups that have people with, who have the disease and people who do not have the disease. But you do not know among the healthy people how many of them are on their way to develop the disease at some point later. Uh, and this brings us to how we make the samples and how we choose the samples and how we make comparisons, which is not as simple as it might sound. And that's why I said that we, there's a lot that we can know, but there are also limitations. And of course, scientists are always explicit about this, if you ask them. It is just that this is not the message that is transmitted in the media. A researcher will find, for instance, a few new genes associated with intelligence will be translated in the media that, you know, scientists found genes for intelligence, even though what the scientists found was an additional contribution to what we already know at the population level and in the sense that I mentioned, uh, things that make a difference, not the only, the single causal factors. So the kind of hype that you, you described uh, in a newspaper article, it seems to be a very common occurrence. And I imagine that, you know, you're hoping to, hoping to combat that level of oversimplification. Over I know that this isn't necessarily your field to think about the motives <laughs> of the people who do this kind of hype, but what what is behind that? I mean, what is it that it's appealing to, let's say, in the audience? Because I would imagine that someone who writes an article like that, they're trying to, of course, sell their article to the newspaper and they know, oh, this is going to really be interesting for, for our readers. You know, finding the essence of who we are, I think it is attractive to people. So a journalist might just, you know, use a headline like this to attract readers to the article he or she wrote. And uh, if that makes the, the article of the journal sell, I think uh, from the marketing perspective, that's, this could work. Uh, but uh, this is where who is the person who's writing is important. A couple of years ago, I made an analysis of how a specific article in Nature Genetics was representing the media. And the only uh, person who took account of everything I'm talking about was Carl Zimmer in the New York Times. But Carl Zimmer is a professional uh, science journalist. He's a science writer, and he's very well aware of all this. And that's why he made by far the best representation of the discussion. Whereas uh, some of the other articles just... Uh, took the press release and they adjusted it to the text without realizing uh, what was going on. Those who contacted the researchers and other researchers outside the study for questions, they had the opportunity to have mentioned explicitly the limitations that uh, were related to that. I, I do not know if this was done on purpose because they wanted just to have a good headline or because they themselves did not realize how these things work. And this brings us to an important uh, difficulty when it comes to science. You know, of course, now the story with the vaccines and vaccine resistance and hesitancy and all that and whether we should trust science or not. And whenever there's a change in a decision, a change in measures, people begin to question science because they expect science to be absolute and certain. And they do not realize that uh, science is self-corrective. And that's why we have to trust it. Because the first thing that scientists do is to become aware of where they got things wrong and make the proper adjustments, especially in situations that are new, uh, like the one we're living now. The big issue is that people look at science for certainty, for dogma, whereas uncertainty is inherent in science. 
which by the way is a topic of another book we wrote exactly for this reason. And it's funny because people question science when it comes to climate change or human evolution, where is uncertainty, of course, but they do not question science when it comes to genetic testing or forensic uh, DNA testing. There they think that, you know, everything is clear. But in all these cases, there's a solid knowledge, but in all these cases, there are also uncertainties. Yeah, I think it would be really helpful to for people to know which parts of science are well-established and which parts are more cutting edge. So, for instance, in astronomy, I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody who's presenting counter-evidence that the uh, Earth goes around the sun. I mean, that's well-established. <laughs> you don't, don't really need to study it anymore. But then you have things like genetics, which is, a, by comparison, a very new field. And there's an awful lot that we don't know. So I think there's a continuum you know, between what's well-established science and cutting-edge science and, and, and everything in between. Yeah, and I think in all, in all fields or in all scientific domains, you will find aspects which are new and aspects which are you know, well-established. This is everywhere. But I also think that when it comes um, to the life sciences, there are some fields that have implications for ourselves, for our everyday life. Human evolution... Uh, might make uh, me, people think that, uh, you know, this is a nihilistic idea. I'm not an animal. I'm more than that. Astronomy might impact you, actually, whereas, you know, uh, nuclear, quantum uh, mechanics or whatever does not have an impact directly on you. Then idea that you are an evolved animal might make you think, see things differently. All, all those um, fields that have an, a relation to medicine, uh, these are domains that I think are treated differently by people because the implications for everyday life under, are direct. And these are the ones that usually have the problems. Right. So everyday life meaning health, but also not everyday life in terms of meaning. You know, who are we? What are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Our, our self-perception. Let's talk a bit more about metaphors. I, I came across quite a number of them in your book and also outside your book in terms of the genetic code. The genetic code itself is a metaphor, being a code. And a code uh, implies that maybe there's a Rosetta Stone. And with the Rosetta Stone, we can translate the code, and then we'll know everything there is to know about our, about our genes. Another metaphor is blueprint. That, you know, blueprint is, specifies exactly how the house is going to be, be built, or in this case, how the body is going to be built, as if it's if you could find a, a, an electron microscope, you could actually see the, the person inside the, the code somehow. I just have to translate it. Uh, another one is a map, and it shows exactly where things are supposed to go. Uh, another one is an information manual. You know, that's some, maybe there's some other aspects of maybe the RNA is, is uh, reading the map and then, and then teaching the map to the, to the proteins, <laughs> you know, if you want to get kind of personified here. Uh, text was another one, uh, the Book of Life, which is a kind of almost biblical sounding one, uh, an encyclopedia, which would be something that can be dipped into as needed rather than read cover to cover, uh, a recipe book. The recipes can be modified and altered depending on which ethnicity you are, but you could still, uh, you can make a pizza like an Italian or a pizza like a Greek or whatever. You can make different kinds of pizza. But it, what's interesting is that uh, they, they all have kind of uh, lend themselves to a certain kind of image in the mind and none of them are qu quite true. On the other hand, it's really hard to understand things without metaphors. I mean, so it's good to have metaphors, but also good to know that they're not ex precisely accurate either. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, all our uh, all our knowledge is symbolic, and we need to have mental representations. So, if you think hard about this, actually, most scientific concepts are metaphors, natural selection. There is no case where nature makes a selection, but uh, this is how Darwin decided to describe the process. Or uh, the the concept of the gene comes from the pan genes of debris which came from the pangenesis that Darwin attributed to Hippocrates, a genesis from all the parts of the body. So if you think hard, you will find metaphors almost everywhere. So that's one problem. Metaphors are inherent in science. The second issue is the metaphors that scientists themselves use for a purpose. So for instance, the, the metaphor of the book of life was the foundational metaphor of the human genome project. And this was probably selected for marketing purposes because they want to find funding. And, you know, as you said, uh, the, the relation to a holy grail or whatever that was and the, the religious aspect of, of this was, was very important. Metaphors is something we cannot do without, but what is crucial in science education and communication is for, is for those who use it to explain the potential of the metaphor and the limitations of the metaphor. Because the problem with the metaphors is that what do we do with a metaphor? We explain something we do not know well in terms of something we're familiar with. But in doing that, we tend to emphasize the aspects that align well and forget the aspects that do not align well. And this is why metaphors can be misleading, because we emphasize so much the, the elements of uh, the path we're using, which nicely represent what we want to see forgetting that there are other aspects that do not work well. And this is why one has just to be careful. And this is also why in this series I'm making for Cambridge University Press, we have a forthcoming book, which is exactly on this topic, the metaphors we use in the life sciences. And uh, the author, Adrian Reynolds, has done a magnificent job to cover all kinds of metaphors and explain uh, to interested readers how we ought to understand them. I thought it might be helpful to talk about a bit more about cancer because I think cancer is an excellent example uh, for understanding uh, the complexity of genes. In particular, and this is something I've really only come across fairly recently, the difference between somatic mutation theory or SMT and tissue organization field theory, TOFT, sort of a mouthful. And, you know, the exact names are not that important for, for right now, but what is important is thinking about uh, cancer as a genetic disease versus a developmental disease and thinking about genes in isolation, which really doesn't make any sense, <laughs> versus genes in an environment. And not necessarily meaning the uh, environment of other people, but the environment within the body and the environment within the even the, the strands of, uh, of the genetic code were you have the, that 97% of what used to be called junk DNA, but actually is what's turning genes on and off and responding to the environment. And I used to think of cancer as, well, that's a unicellular problem. You know, the, the, the cell goes awry and it starts to reproduce. It loses its genetic uh, settings and that's all there is to it. And then it just runs amok. But it turns out that maybe there's more to it. Yes. Since the 1970s, uh, there has been a lot of research on cancer with a focus on mutations. And of course, uh, scientists have found uh, crucial correlations and connections between mutations and cancer. However, we have not gone as far as we would have hoped in terms uh, of uh, 
treating or uh, curing the disease and uh, understanding what is going on. And this is why in recent years, uh, some scientists have turned their attention away from genes, which of course doesn't mean that genes do not contribute to that, but perhaps they're not the main cause. And this is how Carlos Sonnenschein and Anna Soto, uh, Carlos is at uh, Tufts and he's an expert on this, they propose a different approach to see things, simply saying that perhaps we ought to look not just within cells, but also at cell interactions, how cells, in quotation marks, talk to one another, because this is where the problem might be. And eventually the mutations that we see could be a side effect of that. So this is why in recent years, the scientists have turned their attention to those effects because perhaps we focus too much on genes and we miss other phenomena going around. Again, this does not mean that we should forget about the research of the last 50 years. It just means that perhaps after 50 years, it's time to look elsewhere uh, for answers that uh, might, lie, might lie there. And this is, in my understanding, a, a new uh, domain that is uh, on its way of developing. So in other words, it's not realistic to think that uh, you could have a genetic sequencing of normal genes and then compare that to the genetic sequencing of cancerous genes. And then you just, uh, let's say, develop a retrovirus that will correct the genetic anomalies and, and lo and behold, the cancer is cured. That's, that's uh, science fiction. It's probably not realistic. I, I do not know. One cannot say uh, that we never get there. What has been informative uh, well, has been to look at uh, genomes from cancers and make comparisons between those genomes and uh, genomes of healthy people. The question, the big question here is that you cannot know whether these mutations were the cause of cancer. They are usually described as driver mutations or they're simply there because they just happen to be without any effect and they describe them as passenger mutations. So you can find two people in a bus, but it's not always clear who is the passenger or who is the driver and because it's the driver that decides where the bus will go. So scientists are aware that both of these exist. Uh, and in some cases, we can figure out specific mutations that have a clear, a strong impact. But this is not the majority of the cases. Yeah, I think there's another part of your book. You talk about protein synthesis, you know, being directed by, by the genes. And, but the exact shape of the protein is not determined by the genes alone, but by the environment, uh, well, the intercellular environment, I suppose. And my understanding is that genes are extremely long molecules and they, they're three-dimensional. I mean, when they're drawn in a book, they're usually almost linear, you know, with little protrusions, little branches off of them. But uh, it, it, what you see in, in a science book doesn't usually show the shape because I don't know how you would even do that <laughs> on a flat page. And that... Apparently, we're making a lot of progress using computer modeling to, by trial and error, look at, at the various combinations of the various configurations of, of proteins, which doing it by hand would have taken months and months can now be done in minutes. But that's sort of an interesting idea that the, that the ultimate shape of, of, the, of the protein molecule is not determined entirely by, by the gene. And actually, this is not my idea. This is something that Richard Leontin said many years ago. And the point he was trying to make was that uh, we tend to say that genes determine proteins, but actually what uh, genes prescribe is what we call the primary structure of proteins, which is the sequence of the amino acids. Now, 
depending on where amino acids can be found, uh, this has an impact on how they can the, the, the protein sequence can fold. For instance, imagine that you have one which is positively charged and one which is negatively charged. If they're right next to the other, there's no effect. But if they are 20 amino acids apart, this gives space for uh, the chain to fold because of the electrostatic attraction. However, in order for this to happen, there has to be an environment that allows this physicochemical phenomenon. So what you only said is that because proteins uh, usually are produced in an environment that are either cells or cell-like, we forget that the physicochemical environment is important for whatever folding they do, and we attribute everything on genes, whereas the sequence is indeed determined by the genes, but the physicochemical environment in which the protein will be found is also important, and this is something to keep in mind. So another metaphor that you used that I didn't mention yet was music, uh, a composition of music being on the page, but it's, it doesn't have its full meaning until you hear it played. And so you need to have the musicians interpreting the music and how it comes out may be different from time to time. And I, I'd like to expand on your metaphor a little bit. And it's a little bit like the uh, music is a, is a cross between classical and jazz. So you have a conductor, but then depending on what you hear from your surrounding musicians, you may change what you play not just how you play, but what you play. And there's a, a constant interaction between the, the uh, members of the ensemble and then, you know, also glancing up at the conductor too. And it's amazing that it doesn't just result in a cacophony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is a, this is a metaphor by Dennis Noble in his book called Music of Life, in which he argues for a systemic approach. Uh, the book I'm actually very fond of and I'm using in my own book uh, is that of a script and a theater play. So you may, you may give uh, my favorite, uh, the fandom of the opera, uh, to professional actors, but also to a school group. And even though you have the same script, uh, you can imagine how creative kids can be and how much they can change the script, the eventual play from what is prescribed in the script. So the point is that having a script is important, but how this will be implemented and used may differ uh, enormously between two different systems. Another metaphor I'm using is, you know, that of cooking. You can give me and you perhaps uh, the same uh, recipe, but I will probably end up with an empty plate because I have no patience for cooking, whereas you can produce an amazing meal. In other words, the recipe is important, but the developmental system that will implement the recipe is also important. There's no way that we can produce a meal directly from uh, the book by just looking at the picture of how the meal ought to look. How this will be implemented is very important. And this is something that people need to realize. Of course, when development occurs normally without perturbations, usually we can predict the outcome, but this is not always the case. So maybe with the uh, little time that we have left, we could talk about what you refer to as the dangers in the public misunderstanding of, of genes which would be genetic essentialism, genetic determinism, and genetic reductionism. I think it might be helpful to hear uh, what those are. Yeah, which uh, I collectively call genetic fatalism. The idea here is that something inside us that prescribes who we are and what we will be. And this has an impact not only in terms of diseases when it comes to genes, but also, for instance, in our identity. And this is actually... Uh, the topic of the book I'm currently finishing, which has to do with DNA ancestry testing. 
So there are people who take ancestry tests and they, for instance, want to confirm their family story, where they come from, or sometimes are impressed because, for instance, there are interesting stories of white supremacists who realize that they have African ancestry from their DNA. And this makes them reconsider who they are. Uh, there, were, there is another story of a guy, I, I forget his name now, who was entirely anti-Semitic until he found out that he has Jewish ancestry and things like that. Now, the problem there is that what these people do not realize is that each one of us has only inherited a small portion of DNA of their ancestors. And so, whereas we have some genetic ancestors from which we, we have received, uh, we have inherited DNA, we have many more genealogical ancestors. Two, four, eight, sixteen, they double in every generation. And there's no way that our DNA can tell us something about all these people. However, the tendency we have to essentialize uh, this phenomenon makes us believe that with a DNA test, we can figure out who we are. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I would say, this is not the case. So you can't uh, look at the genes under a microscope and read the words, uh, you're a good person? Well, I wish we could, but <laughs> no, we cannot. And I, and I doubt that we will ever do because there is more than that. And this brings to mind another important issue. What we tend to forget is that from our parents, we inherit our genes, but also we inherit an environment because we grow up in the environment that our parents produced for us, whatever that environment was. And we inherit that environment and perhaps we, we use the same environment for our kids too, because this is how we grew up. So inheritance in the broader sense is more than genes and DNA, is a way of thinking, the habits of mind and everything. And when it comes to uh, being good, as you said, or being intelligent or whatever, when it comes to behavior more broadly, there's a lot that we inherit from previous generations. And it's very important to understand that it's not only about genes. What you were just saying about uh, inheriting you know, family values and habits and ways of thinking, I mean, th these kind of things can be very robust. And partly because a lot of it is not taught deliberately, it's taught implicitly under the radar almost people get very attached to these things uh, without even realizing it yeah exactly this is because this is what they're used to and being familiar with something is very important this is what we know and we perhaps feel strangers to other people exactly because what they're doing is not familiar to us this doesn't mean that what we do is better or worse it is just different now, in your book you mention uh, about twins uh, even identical twins or monozygotic twins don't have identical DNA, which was a real surprise. I think most people assume that it's it's like a blueprint copy. And that's why when you do twin studies, you can really separate out the environmental influence because they're identical. But maybe the word identical is overstated. Yeah, it is overstated because uh, the estimation is that we have between 70 and 100 uh, new mutations occurring during our development. So eventually, even two monozygotic twins that uh, initially had the same DNA will eventually differ because of these mutations. This is not sure because, you know, 100 mutations in the gene of, of a billion sequence, a billion uh, letters in quotation marks, that's not much, but it can make a difference. What is, however, more interesting are the epigenetic effects. There is research that shows that uh, monozygotic twins that uh, grew up in different environments end up with different conditions because their environment had an impact on the expressions of the genes they have. 
And that's something that is very, very interesting. Of course, this is not, this doesn't have to do with the DNA itself and the sequence, but with how it is expressed. But it is another example that shows the impact on the environment. And again, I want to emphasize that in no way I'm, not, I'm saying that uh, genes and DNA is not important. It is important, but it's always expressed in a particular cellular context, in a particular tissue and organ context, in a particular, particular environment. And we have to look at all this together to make sense of what is going on. Getting back to the music metaphor, so if the DNA is, in a sense, the, um, the conductor who has the score, if you just take a conductor and a score, you'll hear nothing. That's <laughs> I mean, it's not, not enough. You, you need an orchestra to play the music. Uh, I, I prefer to think of DNA, nevertheless, in terms of, of something like a script. And what the message that they want to convey to people is just having the script is not enough. Someone has to read it or play the music or interpret. And this is the important aspect of the, of the cellular context. So whatever is going on inside us, it's, it's going on inside our cells, which are living organisms, of course, interdependent, but also ones who communicate with one another. And it is all these interactions that we need to understand in order to make sense of what is going on. And one of the metaphors that has the most power these days is computer code. You know, since that's the kind of the most advanced technology that we have right now. And with computer code, there's, I think, a tendency to misunderstand DNA as, as being like uh, the software of, of the living world. And that once the software is written, then you can just sort of run the program. And, you know, computer, as far as I know, I mean, at least at this stage of computer development, <laughs> You know, we don't have computer codes talking with someone else's computer code and changing their code in, in response and then ch you know changing their code in response to uh, not just the user but to other computers around. I mean, there's, in small ways, maybe that's true, but in the larger ways, no. I mean, the computer code is there until it's changed by the coder. Exactly. We now know for sure that we cannot compute the organism on the basis of DNA alone because it takes a lot more and, unfortunately, we cannot control all these factors. We cannot know in detail which are all these factors that have an impact uh, in, the, in the final outcome. We turn to understand more and more as uh, science advances, but there's still a lot that we cannot know. We do not know and perhaps cannot know because we, we shouldn't forget that we have particular abilities to perceive what is going on. Our senses are limited, and there may be things that we just cannot perceive in order to make sense of what is going on. But on the other hand, it is amazing how things have advanced, especially in the last uh, 100 years. If you told geneticists 100 years ago what would be going on today, they, they would say that this is science fiction. And this is why we need to be open to what is going to come, and we need to be prepared in terms of ethics and societal concern regarding the use of whatever technology we will be able to develop. So I'm saying that we're not there yet where we may might arrive, but perhaps we will. And this is why we need to be able to control you know, the use of this knowledge and the application. There was recently a story in the United States about a child that was born after a embryo selection on the basis of polygenic scores. Uh, this is something that is not that simple to implement and it cannot just be, you know, the parents' decision because this has implications 
for society more broadly. And we have to also consider the ethical aspect of, uh, of, of all these interventions. So this might be the uh, the last uh, thought here. Uh, of course, I'd like you to, to respond also that we should think not so much in terms of gene action, you write, but gene interaction. And it, to me, it, it has a connotation of ecology that uh, you know genetic information as it's transcribed and as it's uh, altered and as it's influenced, is it's almost like a, a, an ecology uh, of genetics rather than uh, something linear. Yeah, exactly. Actually, ecology is perhaps uh, one of the disciplines in which a holistic approach has been implemented, whereas in genetics we prefer the reductionist approach. Uh, and now the science that currently works on studies genomes and everything is sometimes described as systems biology, exactly because they realize that you have to have a systemic approach and you know consider everything that is going on in the system, both the bottom up and uh, from upwards to the, to the lower levels. So the interaction means interaction among genes and interaction between genes and their immediate environment or the products of the genes and their immediate environment. I think that this is a very important concept because it means two things. First, that there's a number of factors to consider. And second, that interactions are complex and perhaps we cannot always figure out what is going on. In any case, the simple reductionist explanation that genes you know made me do whatever i did are not sufficient well thank you so much uh, dr kostas kampurakis who teaches at the university of geneva and recently wrote a book understanding genes so thank you so much for coming on to delving in thank you very much for inviting me i'm Stuart kelter and you have been listening to the podcast edition of delving in originally broadcast on ktallp the community radio station in las cruces new mexico Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.